Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. When I started doing these interviews, people were like, startup tech, huh? will it work? And then it got into this, it's going to work for anybody. Why does my mother have a startup? It's so easy. Look at this SaaS company, direct to consumer. It's all a win. And I have to be honest that um, after COVID, a lot of I don't know. A, a lot of us in this space started to feel like maybe we're in an oversaturated market. Maybe SaaS is not going to work out because there are too many people and there are too many companies and there's too much money and it's not going to work out for us. And maybe direct-to-consumer is not going to work out anymore because there are too many businesses and many of the ones who started out as direct-to-consumer online businesses are going into stores and ah. And I get it. I see it in the audience. I see it in entrepreneurs that I'm talking to. And I want to find out instead of like where the limits are and where your your sense of frustration is, I want to find out what's working. And so I invited the founders of a company that I consider to be one of the heroes of direct-to-consumer space. They're the founders of Allbirds. These people um, somehow got their footwear. I don't know why I'm calling it footwear. I think I'm trying to be a little more professional with you guys, Joey. You can um, go with shoes. You got your shoes on Larry Page, Ben Horowitz, Mary Meeker. Like It became like the in thing with the, the tech elite and then the in thing within tech. And then I saw it expand beyond. And then... Um, I saw you guys go public. I saw you go into stores. But at the same time, I'm reading the financial press and I see, well, this the stock price is down and maybe it's not a direct-to-consumer business anymore. And I want to find out how you built this business, what's working for you, and how you're dealing with what a lot of us are seeing, which is this sense that not everyone is optimistic about what we're doing. Anyway, let me introduce my, my two guests and then we'll talk about all that. Uh, Joey Zwillinger and Tim Brown, the two co-founders of Allbirds, this fantastic company. And I'm going to get to talk to them thanks to Gusto, which I'll tell you later about. But first, Joey, how how does this sit with you? The sense that what I described about this uh, pessimism in the market right now and in, in entrepreneurs' uh, minds. I um I can empathize with the with the feeling that you're describing, Andrew. But I would I would urge a little bit of patience here. You know, we we are in a cycle, and if you think back to 2019, we operated in a, a world where everything was like a taut rope. There was very high utilization of every system, and that's what you know capitalism tends to drive. Whether it's shipping or demand and manufacturing, and how those two things blend together on on any consumer products industry. And when the pandemic happened, we just had like this huge shock to the system. And I wrote a note on on LinkedIn that you can maybe post in the footer of this podcast, but just describing that I think, and you might be really sick of listening to someone say the word COVID and almost get repulsed by it. Everything that we're dealing with in the economy has to be considered through that lens right now, because it was like a absolute shock to the system that that just sent these huge waves into the economy and it needed some time to get back to normalcy and get back to what was probably before that the 10 or 20 year trend line. And so I think in times of greatness, let's not get too overzealous and, and plan for things to continue to go to the moon. And when times are very volatile or down, let's also not uh, give up hope and lose the forest for the trees. Uh, because I think you know what we've faced has been a real testament to that. We came out of the gates when we started and I'd love to be able to get into why Tim and I started the brand. But we started in 2016 and had real meteoric growth. And we always believed that the biggest and most important moat to what we were doing was our innovation 
infrastructure that we are focused on really unique materials to bring differentiated experience to customers and our brand. And that that surpassed any distribution channel, whether it was DTC on a digital side or stores or wholesale. We were always envisioned as a brand first, not a distribution channel. And And as we started to build out the infrastructure for that, lo and behold, two years into it, north of 200 million in revenue, we were hit with what everyone was hit with in the economy, which was these giant shockwaves. And being a young company, some things were very difficult to determine whether it was signal or noise in the system. And so those speed bumps present a real challenge for us. But fortunately, we fortified the business with every resource that we need to be successful. Probably most importantly in that is a really nice pile of cash that allows us to operate in a way that gives us control of our own destiny. And that's going to allow us to do the right things for the long term right now that will set us up for sustained and durable and profitable growth as we move forward. So that's where we are. And I, I would just suggest that reading into anything today without taking into that context of the last four years is is a trap that that might be worthwhile thinking about and regaining some conviction on where the world is actually going. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but this the market cap was over $4 billion at one point, and then today it's at under $200 million. But you're saying that you have a pile of cash. How much cash do you have? Uh, we ended the last quarter above $130 bucks in cash. And for the nine months preceding that, I think we used about $35 million. So we, okay. we got plenty of room. Um, we've committed to the market that we'll be making cash, cash flow positive in 2025. So just simply doing the math on that. We got plenty of cash to do what we need to do. And we've done an incredible amount of work this year to ensure that we can shift our focus from some of the nasty stuff we had to do this year into a really smart and profitable growth model in 2024 and beyond. Okay. One final thing, and then I'm going to go to Tim to talk about the history of the company, but to start us off with the history of the company. And I'd like to spend more time thinking about how you got here, what's working, what's going to work in the future. But you mentioned cash. We talked about market cap debt. How much? Zero. Zero debt. Wow. This is like an incredible opportunity that you got here. Tim, let's come back to the beginning. You had the original idea. Where'd you come up with the idea? Yeah. Hi, Andrew. I was in a, an apartment in Wellington, Cuba Street. People know the city. Playing at that time professional football, soccer, depending on where you're from. Dreaming of going to a World Cup with New Zealand something that happened, ha hadn't happened for 28 years. And I was focused on that and had started a, a very, very early entrepreneurial path that didn't involve a strategy or a business plan, more born only from curiosity in shoes. One of the best things about playing professional sport is getting free gear. And I got lots of it from one of the large sportswear companies that shall not be named. And it was largely made from plastic. I'd grown up in New Zealand, not as, a, as an environmentalist, but certainly with an empathy for natural materials and a mum that taught me to check the tags of all the clothes that I wore to make sure that they didn't feature plastic. Um, and so why? a couple, a couple of things. Drop, in and that was why the starting do you care that it's plastic? Why did you, why did you look at the labels? What was it about, about that? You know, I, I think uh, I'd, I'd been taught, it'd been drilled into me that natural was better. And obviously growing up in New Zealand, land of lots of sheep, cue, cue sheep jokes from, from Joey here shortly, um, that you started to understand that this is a very important historical and cultural part of New Zealand's economy and history, but it had been in decline. Peak sheep in New Zealand was 1982, I believe. 
north of 100 million. Now there's less, now there's less than 25 million. And no one in a generation has grown up wanting to be a farmer. And you understand that really part of the cause of that has been the rise of the synthetic industry, cheap materials derived from barrels of oil. And I don't think I understood that at the time, but I knew that there was an opportunity in wool. And I was reading a magazine one day and it was about this decline of the wool industry. And I applied for a grant while I was still playing football to develop a a textile made from wool to be used in shoes. So that was the starting point. And the second insight, I like to say that Allbirds was founded on three insights, quite simple ones. There was an opportunity in natural materials. And and then the second one in footwear, the shoes and the gear that I got tended to be, in my opinion, over-designed and over-logoed. And they changed all the time for no good reason. And it was very, very hard to find simple. Um, anyone who's walked into a sort of a footwear shop and looked at the wall kind of knows what I'm talking about. It's screaming at you. And there was an opportunity to maybe whisper and whisper something more meaningful. And I'd come to America on a soccer scholarship and actually studied design and had the principles of minimalism drilled into me. So the combination of the materiality and and uh, and so I set off to work out how to make a shoe. And that's where you met Joey. How'd you connect with him? Uh, I, I managed to go to that World Cup in 2010, which was really special. Decided um, that was I'd taken this further than I ever thought possible and retired and went back to business school in London to study all the subjects I'd avoided in my educational career up until that point. And I had a professor looked at my wool shoe idea in an entrepreneurship class uh, and actually called it the worst idea he'd seen in his teaching career, but encouraged me to put it on Kickstarter or something so it could fail and I could get on with my life because I just seemed like one of those guys that was going to try hard for a long time and possibly make myself unhappy. So that was lovely. Of course, Andrew, who's a friend and a mentor, actually spoke to him recently. Um, but I called his bluff, went home for Christmas on a family friend's farm in Bahatanui, just north of Wellington, $700. The help of my brother shot a Kickstarter video that, that started it all. I had enough material, the special wool material that we created over a number of years. Um, and bear in mind, this is 2014, seven years after I started thinking about this, just to give some sense of the time. Oh. I put it on Kickstarter and, and we sold the thousand pairs and in four days I had to stop it. It was $120,000 and it was the beginning. And as it turned out, Joey was one of the first first Kickstarter customers. And, and that's how we connected on the third insight, the third pillar of what, make, what makes all birds. What was the third insight? Um, first of all, I just want to go on the record and state he was a difficult customer and complained quite a lot about the um, Kickstarter uh, shoes, something about the sizing, which I'm sure he'll have a, an alternative point of view on. But I'll, um, just, I'll just add to that, that the customer yeah. service at the time was very poor. This, uh, is bef- this is before you even got the shoe, you were starting to complain? No, 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 no. It was a fair complaint. He'd sent me a women's 10 when I had ordered a men's 10, and I was just curious if I could maybe swap out the size so it fit my foot. And his response was that I should take out the insole and see if that gave me enough room to comfortably walk around in the shoes, which is, in the end, what I did. It turned out, I think he was a little constrained with materials at the time, given that he'd sold through the campaign. Uh, and I, I walked away a um, four, four-star reviewed customer. I, th- I think your, list- your listeners will make up their own minds about 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 how how Joey handled that situation, Andrew. But um, uh, so th- this was the beginning, and 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 so I, I, I moved to London this and and spent a, a really difficult year trying to deliver on this. Um, making shoes, it turns out, is really hard. Making shoes with no experience is, is quite difficult, and then doing it with a material that's never been used in the footwear industry before, with at the time no capital, was borderline. Crazy. And Joey had, uh, our, our wives had been roommates at university. Um, he continued to be, in all seriousness, a supporter and a, a sounding board for this journey. And then at some point, we decided that we should do it together. My father at the time was calling me a, 
a wool cobbler and it used to really get under my skin. I didn't grow up on a sheep farm as good as that would have been for the story. And I didn't grow up with a particular appreciation or interest in shoes. And yet I found myself pursuing this thing that was very difficult. And then I met Joey and in all the ways that I had a kind of a design and, and, and maybe material vision for the product, he had a vision, which I'll let him share about how the world was going to change and that we were on the the cusp of a sustainable revolution and every product and service that we use was going to need to be rethought and reimagined. And it was an opportunity to do that in the fashion industry and that this project that I was sitting on that I hadn't really viewed through that lens had at its core, had at its heart, this extraordinary purpose and opportunity. And I don't want to say that it got easier from that point because it certainly didn't. Um, but I, I would like to say that's the moment when I didn't look back and I realized we had an idea or, or something that you could, you could devote the rest of your career to trying to solve. Now, before we bring Joey back into the conversation, um, when you were making the shoes yourself, how did you even make them? Where'd you find the factory? How'd you get this up and running? I just, I jumped online and the first footwear factory I visited, I just Googled it and I visited in one of my off seasons of, of football and I, it was driven by just curiosity. And I walked into this world, the mass manufacturer of this object that we use every day and realized that it hasn't changed and it's incredibly antiquated. And I had the power of just a little bit of time and a little bit of space to ask the questions like, how does sizing work to Joey's earlier? How, how are these things made? And realized that there was an extraordinary opportunity to do it differently and that it was a it was a, an infrastructure that tended to have done one thing one way for the last 50 years just because it was how it was done and that it tended to default to using the cheapest materials and the lowest cost labor and historically it actually chased that around the globe and we saw an opportunity to do it differently. I think the other thing that was going on at the time was the the fashion industry was started to talk about the environment and people were becoming more cognizant, but there was sort of a lack of understanding of exactly what that meant and how you might build that into a business that that made better products. And, and so that's where Joey came in. So Joey, when you did meet up, how did you end up in partnership with Tim? When Tim was working on the Kickstarter, I mean, I, I remember back when we first started talking in, I guess, late 2014, he was, I think he undercooked some of the entrepreneurial zeal that he took to the effort there. He was happened to bump into someone in a suit store that he he had played soccer with. And that person introduced him to the owner of a very fine merino wool factory in Italy, who then introduced to us to a, a last maker in the northern part of Italy. We had a foundation there to start because of the entrepreneurial effort that that Tim had really embraced and, and worked very hard against. But I think uh, what, when we started talking, um, T Tim alluded to it, but my background was very different. Like Tim, I didn't grow up on a sheep farm, certainly. Uh, I also didn't uh, have a particular appreciation for the footwear industry. But what I did have was a, a view that climate change was going to be the existential threat for our species over the next 50 years. And that was a problem that felt to me worthwhile spending a large chunk of my life fighting. And the way that I thought would be intellectually rewarding and very productive was going to be through the private sector and particularly through entrepreneurship. So, you know, dating back to just after I finished college, I started looking at investing in what was at the time called clean tech companies from a venture capital firm. I then ended up going to a operating company because I thought that was a better path to, to do this. And what we did, the company was called Solazyme. We used biotechnology to ma manipulate microalgae. 
And what we would be doing with the biotech tools is essentially programming these microbes to eat low carbon emission intensity sugars and spit out whatever we program that microbe to do. And, and because of what algae produces, which is like an oil, we were focusing that technology on replacing anything that petroleum could make, whether that was fuel, any kind of fuel to biodiesels for trucks or airplanes. We were the first company to put fuel on a commercial airliner with United flying from Chicago to Houston. Uh, and, and then I ended up leading the, uh, the green chemicals division. So we replaced anything Wait, I'm that sorry, was a petrochemical. To put fuel, to put what kind of fuel on first airliner? Jet but al algae-based jet fuel on, on Meaning on algae-made jet fuel? Instead of yeah, we, pulling oil out of the ground, algae-made the fuel that got an airplane up in the sky? Correct. And it flew on a commercial flight. And uh, in fact, when we did our uh, public offering and did the whole ceremony in the NASDAQ in, in New York, we actually asked United to fill the plane up with, with bio-based aviation fuel to fly our team out there so that we are a low carbon emission flight out to New York. The journey goes on with that technology. Uh, but what wh where I was sitting in that business, you can make- Sorry, I got to like pause on that. I was going to continue, but what is the challenge with that? My, my assumption is it's too expensive to make enough of it to compete with something that comes out of the ground without having to- be there's, there's a number of challenges. Um, cost isn't necessarily one of them. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't as commodities fluctuate. But the one of the biggest challenges is actually in some of the infrastructure and the jet fuel, how you pass it through a number of different tanks and pipes that need to pump it through. And there's it actually often boils down to the a particular kind of seal that is used to allow jet fuel to pump through and keep its viscosity and, and be temperature controlled that doesn't work as well for the bio-based version. But anyway, we're, we're down a technical rabbit hole, but infrastructure is really challenging in the transition to a, a green economy, not just for seals on aviation fuel, but also for batteries and transmission lines for electricity, all that stuff. So I think this is the mountain that the world is left to climb right now is getting some conviction and betting in the infrastructure. And I, w I will say that similar was what was happening to me in, in the chemical side. So I, I ran the group that was responsible for making alternatives to petrochemicals, which is in absolutely everything around us, whether it's the paint on the wall behind you or the wires that connect the electrical cords in that light, everything there is plastic. Yeah. And and we, it, it's it's hard to fathom even how much of the world around us is born from plastic. And the promise of this technology was that we could replace all of those by by tuning these microbes. But yet when I went into the customers that we were targeting, it was oftentimes an unbelievable story that sounds incredible. And then by the third conversation, it was like, hey, you know what would be awesome if you just made that plastic a little bit cheaper so we had a, a bigger bottom line. Mm -hmm. and, and that became such a repetitive cycle that for me, what I learned, and there was particular moments when the light bulb really was like firing, but that con consumers wanted a no compromise offering, no matter what the product was that they were using. They wanted it to be high performance and they wanted it to not dent the world uh, and make an environmental impact. The technology existed, not just with the company I was working at, but all the competitors that we were playing with in the material space. There's tons of opportunities to use the, the best innovator in the world, which is nature, to unlock unbelievable differentiation in products. And the brands were getting in the way. And so it, it struck me that while I was in this really repetitive and frustrating situation with the customers I was dealing with, if there was a brand that could curate all of these materials and build cultural relevance around an object or a, a, a set of, of products, there was a power in the emotional connection that could drive 
those consumers to get everything that they wanted from a performance perspective and an environmental perspective. Okay. And that when Tim came in with this, with the Kickstarter, he had a real intuitive insight for this. And if you look back to the Kickstarter campaign, which is still available online, you'll see these elements and the kernels of what we became in Alberts are all still there. Tim's shaking his head that you probably shouldn't do that, but I think it's a great video and it really is the kernel for, for what we ended up doing and we still do today, which is this is something better. And it happens to be a, a free gift with purchase is that it's the most environmentally responsible product in the entire world in our industry, at least. And, and so that connection allowed when Tim and I got together in, in now early 2015, we came to my house and we really had this conversation where we decided that one plus one could equal three. And my material science background, understanding of, of how to build manufacturing and, and entrepreneurship connected to this natural materials underbelly that we use for the company connected with his consumer insight, intuitive marketing sense and design ethos. That is something that could be special and could provoke an emotional response from consumers and build something that was not only a leader in our industry, but also a business that had an incredible opportunity to do great for the world and, and great for whoever the financial stakeholders were going to be. All right. Tim, you're, you're not part of day-to-day -day now, right? Um, I am. Oh, you are? Very you're just so, not yeah, running as, you're not co-CEO. We ran the business through the first seven years as co-CEOs okay. and, and then now I'm chief innovation officer okay. focused on looking a little bit further or trying to look a little further ahead about the future of what we create and, and having a great deal of fun doing it. Okay. Here's the thing that I was amazed by. The people who are wearing all birds. I mean, I mentioned people like Larry Page, which I don't know if anyone had seen. I know that in the New York Times article that I read about it, I think one of you had told the New York Times reporter, but it's feels right within the context of what was happening at the time that uh, that you'd launched. I think like my wife worked for Marissa Meyer. I think she wore the shoes at the time. I'd seen them everywhere and they trickled down. What I want to know is how did you make that happen? How did you get these people who are not very environmentally concerned to wear these, to wear your shoes? What was the process for doing that? I, I think it started with the product. Just to zoom back, we launched... Um... We moved to San Francisco from London where I was, started working out of Joey's mother-in-law's house in San Rafael with his dog, Walter, and a couple of our first employees. And we, learned, we launched Allbirds on the 1st of March, 2016. And in the first week, Time Magazine called the shoes the most comfortable in the world, which was good. And, and really, we realized the comfort was the number one reason why you buy shoes and natural materials supported an extraordinary feeling unlike anything else. And it was, it was a word of mouth based on a unique design perspective and, and a feeling. You don't plan for these things. Uh, Are you saying you people know, just picked up on it? because No, I because people, I lived in San Francisco at the time. People in San Francisco didn't care about the Time Magazine. If anything, they didn't, they didn't like whatever Time Magazine was picking because it felt old and too mainstream. Yeah, I, I, look, they may or may not have read the article that I, I can't remember the one that you're talking about. The point being, like, there was an experience that people felt compelled to tell other people about. And it was simple. It was counterintuitive. It wasn't. It wasn't it your team reaching out, sending out gifts. Yeah, of course. It was. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Look, let, let's let's give us some yeah. credit that we we have and we started a business in fashion in San Francisco, and we're told many times that we couldn't do it. And we launched with one shoe that many people in the footwear industry seemingly were coming out of the woodwork to tell us would never work. And we used natural materials in a way that we were reminded fairly regularly had not been done successfully. And we launched it with a direct to consumer business yeah. model. So 
these things have a little alchemy and we worked extremely hard. And let's be clear, when we launched that on, in 2016, that we're going on nine years of iteration, albeit in an amateur fashion of trying to make this shoe uh, and of bringing a new material to life. And we found factories online and this was a true entrepreneurial kind of journey. So the, the hard work had been done and I, th I think we had a product and a story and Joey touched on the importance of brand and a true purpose and mission that attracted extraordinary talent. And it went from there. And I still remember when my mum called me and Jacinda Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister, had, had just gotten the job and she met the Australian Prime Minister for the, for the first time, which is a big deal in New Zealand politics. And the gift that she gave him was was a pair of Allbirds. And mum was like, look, as far as I'm concerned, yeah. <laughs> this is, it doesn't get any better than this. These things, they have a habit of a lot of different things come together. It's a little bit like when you're playing sport. It's no one thing. You do a thousand little things really well, and you do that with a group of people pointed towards something larger than themselves, and you trust in the process. And over time, you know, you start to make your own luck. And we had a lot of it. Um, Can you give me an example so, of one of the things that helped get these celebrities in Silicon Valley to start wearing Allbirds? I, th I think um, we told the story, and we had a vision. And in all the ways that the product was really simple and counterintuitive because of that, um, coming in for some of those founding insights around a, a sort of a footwear industry that was loud and bold. We came in and we were simple and singular. We also had a, a big vision for an industry that we felt needed to change. And on the back of Joey's story and, and also vision, we were able to slowly over time build confidence in the idea that we were different and that we had a purpose that had the basis of what we came to believe could be a hundred year brand. And I think people over time, they, they connected to that and saw that we were trying to do something different, particularly in San Francisco, sort of a bastion of innovation, yeah. and that this was counterintuitive. And it, I think it was a big part of our success. And, and look, we told that story to a lot of people. And so that was, it, it, it amplified How did you it. tell it? Um, yeah, Andrew, sure maybe I'll, I'll just add, you know, I, I, as I reflect back on that time, um, and, and I do a lot because I think some of what we did great back in the very early days of Allbirds is something that um, as you build a company and you scale and you add all this complexity, sometimes there's some really foundational aspects that are important there. And what, when we started, we poured absolutely every dollar of resource that we had into building the best product that we possibly could. This isn't like a minimum viable product strategy that you have in technology, in software, where you just iterate, iterate, iterate. Like we did iterate lots of times in the future, but we needed it to be very good when it came out of the gate. And then we needed to invest in in getting the word out and making sure that the story was crisp and focused. And what we said 99 times, we would say no for every one thing we said yes to. And that kind of level of focus allowed us to say something very crisp and clear to the consumer when we launched. And that message resonated. And I think, you know, you're coming from a world where you're thinking about technology all the time. And those people are incredibly notable people. But like for, for most of America and most of the world that was hearing about Allbirds back in 2016, it wasn't from technology people. It was, you know, we had Barack Obama wearing it to basketball games. We had Oprah was in it. We had Ashton Kutcher, like tons of celebrities in the entertainment industry were doing that. Technology was kind of something where similar to the entertainment industry, you'd be in an informal work environment. And so it fit really nicely with the right. lifestyle for what people yeah. were doing. That was true for entertainment. It happened to also be true for for people working in a fairly informal style environment like the technology is. So it kind of fit for both and, and, and a narrative developed around the technology thing. But 
I would I would point it all back to that focus and that crispness and clarity of message to the consumer, not trying to do everything and spread your bets across seven different things. Put your bet on one thing, make that message super clear. Some people are going to love it. Some people are going to hate it, but there's going to be enough people that love it that build a really special foundation. Here's, here's what business. I think. Tell me if, if I'm right as an outsider, what I was thinking was you realize that at that time, tech celebrities were celebrities. They were starting to become influencers and that you had reached to, you had reached out to them, gave them uh, samples of the shoes. They were more interested, I think, in function first and reasonable first than they were in design. And you courted them. They started wearing uh, all birds. As a result, they were also heavy in social media. Maybe you encourage them to to promote it or talk about it. But I, I just saw Tim's eye do something when I said encourage them. You didn't encourage them. It, you just let it be. If we didn't really do much there, like I'm it was really organic. Again. We we honestly we didn't seed technology people. We no. didn't like we we would seed like people in entertainment okay. for sure because that's like got a bigger megaphone. But no, I mean we this was something where. The message just landed. We had product market fit, you know, like the shoe, the shoe was something people wanted. The story, like you made the supposition that some of these people didn't care about the environment. That's not what they do for a living. I'm sure they care about the environment. Most people do. And like, regardless of political ideology, like people care about the world that they live in. And I think, I think it just, it was a message that landed like really effectively for people. There's a temptation, I think, with brands and new products to talk about the 27 things that you do well. And I think for better or worse, over a period of time, we'd anchored on comfort is the number one reason why people buy shoes. And it's often equated with ugliness. So simplicity is hard. Um, it takes a long time to understand that that was the lane that we were going to we were going to come into. And look, I mean, we were obsessed about every like millimeter and strand of this product to deliver that that promise. And then I think we brought a sense of humor to a fairly self-serious category. Um, and the, the cultivation of this brand, which is always a representation of the founding story and the people that founded it, wanted to go after something really serious, Andrew, the problem of our generation. Um, but I think, and I'm, I'm proud of this New Zealand connection, but to do that without ever taking ourselves too seriously. And I think it was something that drew people in. Um, and the courage to, to be simple, the, the courage to take a stand on one thing, the courage to edit. Um, yeah, and we, and we got lucky. What was also happening was there was this athleisure as, a, as sort mm -hmm. of a little bit of, overused word, but this was, was happening and it happened in apparel in the casualization of fashion, shifting workplace trends, which has only accelerated in COVID. And there wasn't really a lot of footwear solutions that were aimed at this in-between space. And natural materials, by virtue of their incredible properties, allow this sort of multifunctional use. So there was a bunch of things that under, underpinned this that were deeply thought out. And then, you, you know, you make a little bit of luck. But I guess just to answer your question, it wasn't like we, we had some sort of marketing agency that we went to and said, like, kind of hit these four people. In fact, in many ways, this sort of narrative of Silicon Valley shoe isn't actually mm -hmm. accurate, that we were, we were adopted by a creative community across America and in New Zealand. And, and this was actually a, a part of the story that didn't reflect how our business grew. But nonetheless, is quite frankly, one that we're proud of. All right, let me talk about uh, Gusto. It's the company that I love for paying people because if they're working for you, they want clarity on how much you're getting paid and you want simplicity for how to do it. They want clarity on benefits and you want simplicity so that even if you have a last minute payment that you need to send to someone, you're not dreading it. You know, I can just go in, super simple. It's as easy as using Google. Joey, let's be open. You used to use Gusto, my sponsor. You don't anymore. 
Could you tell us what, do you remember what you guys liked about Gusto and why you've switched off? Uh, yes, I can remember because I set up the whole you process. You did, yourself. <laughs> why? Yeah. Why Gusto? Yeah, myself. What do you remember about it? We needed employees to do amazing work and we needed to pay them. So we had to do something. And Gusto was super easy and uh, we enjoyed it. It never got anything wrong. It was a fantastic process for us. And, and frankly, I, I wish we could have the simplicity today, but we we expanded into retail with a lot of payroll on hourly work. We expanded internationally and the system that we had built just got a little bit too complex based on where Gusto was at the time. Remember, we started in 2016. I don't think Gusto was a very old company at that time. So sometimes you find yourself adopting new technologies when uh, they're developing a product roadmap themselves. And sometimes your needs get ahead of their product roadmap. Sometimes you're right in sync. And we've got lots of examples of like of technologies that we've adopted over the years. And, and Gusto was a fantastic one for where, where we were um, at that time. And hey, I don't know. Maybe it's great for us again. You know again. what? Truthfully, I think you're probably at a stage where you're too big and your employee base is too complex for Gusto. And I'll be open and say that it's probably not for you. But for companies like mine, for companies like many of the people who are listening to me, if you're just looking to pay your people, remote people in the office, 1099s, it's dead simple. It just works, helps you handle payroll, handle benefits in a way that you'll actually, believe it or not, you'll enjoy it. You'll have clarity especially at the end of the year when it comes to taxes. This is a time of year when a lot of people are thinking about switching away from their payroll software. Do it, and I'm going to make it easy and free for you. If you sign up using my link, I'll get credit, and I appreciate you all for doing that. But also, you're going to get three months for free. Not the payment is a big prop. To be honest, the price is super low. It's not going to be the thing that holds you back, but it might be the thing that pushes you over the edge to just go try it for free. Just go to gusto.com slash Mixergy. You opened up, um, actually, you know what? Instead of going into stores, COVID, you've talked to me a lot, Joey, about, about COVID. I guess I didn't realize how COVID impacted you both bef- both during and after. What happened during and what's the lasting effect of COVID? I think people's memories are short. So I think the lasting effect, if I could say something that might be upsetting for some people, is going to be very minimal. <laughs> but the, the vicissitudes that happened during the five years, starting maybe in China in late 2019, but really in America in, in March of 2020, through the next five years, which we're still living through, are, are very significant amounts of volatility in, in virtually every sector. And so when it comes to the consumer product space and the brand space, you had issues where companies with very high awareness, when, every, when the world shut down in March of 2020, all the stores closed. They needed to keep selling all this mountain of inventory that they had. So they shifted what was like 30% of their marketing budget to 100% in digital and just flooded the digital ecosystem with ad dollars, which which significantly increased the cost to acquire customers through digital. You had supply chain issues where factories shut down. There was so much furniture coming in because mortgage rates were low and people needed a house that could actually work as an office. So furniture's coming in, clogging up all the ships on the sea. Their supply chain lead times went from 60 days to 120 days. Prices skyrocketed. So all, all of this sent a huge shock to a system that was normally operating at like 90% utilization and no system can handle a huge shock when it's operating with that, that little slack in their capacity. All of that kind of swung. And for footwear specifically, people who hadn't run in 15 years decided the only sanctuary I have in this moment in time when I'm cooped up in my house is to go and try to go take a walk or, or take a run. So running shoes went through the roof and, and we had no running shoes at that time. 
uh, and, and weren't a, at all a performance-oriented company, really a, a lifestyle with, a, with an athlete, athletic or athleisure kind of aesthetic to it. So all of those things were, were incredibly difficult. And you know, if you don't have a, a large base of business with high awareness amongst consumers to face a period of time like that, the data is coming in from all sides and parsing out which one is, is signal and which one is noise is an incredibly difficult challenge. I, I do think that I do think that all of the economic volatility can be traced back to actions and consequences that relate to what happened in the pandemic, whether it's like, you know, the Fed rate fund, the stimulus, the supply chain issues, and everything with consumer behavior and shopping behavior that we're still dealing with today. Well, has it gone back now? to the way it was before you're not seeing that people are going well i guess now if anything i would feel like if they're working from home they want comfortable shoes if we're working from home we're comfortable ordering online it, has it gone back to the way it was before covid for you yet no i don't think anything has come all the way back yet in in most spaces i think if you think about like a metronome that was stable got shocked to one side uh we're slowly coming back to the center now um, but I, I would say that people are starting to go back to work, maybe not in San Francisco, but pretty much everywhere else. And that, that is driving back to a behavior of both consumption and shopping that is a little bit more pre-pandemic. I also think that during the period of time of COVID in the midst of the pandemic, there was this maximalist expression that happened where it was really what you were wearing was a lot louder, particularly in, in the footwear category. It was like everything that Tim loathed back when he was playing soccer was in vogue again for a minute. And I think the quiet luxury phase, which has been coming back for the last like six, six months or so, I think is the future. And that's what we were on, this versatility in the blurring of work and play and requiring to uh, re requiring that people wear items that allow that blurring of the lines. That was what was going on pre-pandemic and was a significant trend that we were really focused on attacking because that's the way we, we thought the world was heading. And there's been a little bit of a, a break and a hiatus in that. And I think now we're uh, optimistic that the trends and the fashion and what people are going to be using uh, clothes and apparel and how they want to express themselves is really coming back to that quiet luxury with a, a, an appreciation for something that's a bit austere and allows you to have versatility in your style, uh, not just in the physical aspect of comfort or longevity or whatever you're looking for in a shoe. What do you think about um, direct-to-consumer online, just online purchases versus in-store? It feels like it's mature, like it's less exciting, less novel, less growth. What are you experiencing? I know you do both, in-store and online. Yeah, our, our digital business is performing really well. Um, I, I think that, uh, so first of all, a DTC company is, that that is... Like if you're a brand that's selling a, a, a product that you manufacture, that is your company. And you need to win based on that. You're not going to win based on a distribution channel like selling through an e-commerce infrastructure. Now, if you're a business model, take Chewy.com, where you've identified some kind of a, a, an opportunity in supply chain to exploit a supply chain difference in the market where you can uniquely solve a supply chain problem and connect a host of brands into serving consumers' needs. And you have lots of whatever the widget you're selling is, and you can match that to lots of consumers and use data. That's a DTC company. What we are is a brand that sells an amazing differentiated product, and that needs to transcend any single distribution channel. So just, you know, digital 
we've always believed digital acquiring customers on a, in a digital led infrastructure or marketplace that will get more expensive over time, more difficult, and you're going to run out of new consumers to reach. So really early on in 2017, we, we started to build stores. Those stores were the most immersive experience. And we found that people who shopped in our stores and online spent over 50% more than someone who was a repeat customer that was just a digital customer. So we knew that omni-channel customer was better. As we built out the segmentation of our assortment, we wanted to go into, into the wholesale infrastructure and, and that system and build the muscle to meet that buying cycle, which is really difficult. And we've always envisioned like, you know, call it like 30% of our business would be wholesale. The rest of it would be direct and you maybe split that in some kind of proportion between stores and digital. But, but that wholesale was going to be really important to meet new consumers. And we always thought about it as profitable brand awareness building. And, and that was what we anticipated embarking upon as we met the unfortunate news of a pandemic. So we pulled back on that for a couple of years. Now we're starting to embrace that and we're starting to grow that, that part of our business. And we see that as something that's going to be incredibly important to meet new consumers and build our awareness from something that is less than 15% in America of people know about us. Have you ever heard Allbirds? 85 out of 100 will say, I've never heard of that company. So I hope some of you 85 people are on are listening here today because um, you got to go to allbirds.com and try it because uh, it's an incredible product and you'll start uh, buying lots of them instead of all the other crap that's out there. Yeah. I want to talk about Moonshot. It's both environmentally friendly, but also the design is unique. Can you tell me about the environmental part of the component? And then how do you know whether people are actually going to like this shoe? It's so different from the others that, that you're selling and that other people are selling. Just to sort of zoom back quickly, sustainability is a word that people use all the time, but it means a hundred different things to a hundred different people. It's about recyclability, end of life, natural materials, free trade air quality, land quality, animal welfare, and you could go on and you go on and you get so confused that you don't want to get out of bed in the morning. And we've latched on to the idea of carbon as the North Star for how we focus our innovation and measure the impact of our products. And it allows us to print a score effectively on every product that we make. And much like calories on food, it's not the total answer to a healthy diet, but it's a really important North Star metric that connects me to you, New Zealand to America, the footwear industry to the automotive industry, and lad ladders up to a number that we all need to work to reduce. And we believe firmly that's the future of how we'll evaluate our environmental impact. And we're one of the first in the fashion industry to label every product that we made with a carbon footprint. And that led to a lot of really interesting partnerships with Adidas. And I think the realization for us from an innovation perspective is that normally when you think about making a product, you think about three things. You think about the aesthetic, the utility, the cost. And now all of a sudden there's this fourth pillar of carbon that is like anything else. It's a lever that you push and pull that will impact um, the future of how the products that we use look and how they feel. And much like a, an electric car is freed from the constraints of a combustion engine, it will necessitate a new design code and a new design language. And I think we sit here at the moment a, a little bit on the cusp of the second chapter of the conversation around sustainability. And the first one was a rush to understand, a commitment to engage with the topic. It involved a lot of science, necessarily so, and a lot of pledges from corporations for 2030, 2040, 2050 and beyond. Really important. Second chapter of this is, okay, what does that mean? And how is that going to change the things that we make? And not just some tiny percentage of our business, but everything. And so I like to say it's a little bit of a shift from the science to the storytelling and from PDFs to product. And, and that's 
all of a sudden this becomes a creative exercise and for me has been one of the most fascinating parts of this journey with Allbirds as a designer. And Moonshot was just our pithy way of saying this stuff's hard and making a, a net zero carbon product effectively with no impact is a little bit like going to the moon. Not easy, but possible. And, and so we set out to try and do that. And, and, but then at the end of the day, Andrew, it's a really important point. People don't buy sustainable products. They buy great ones. This is about, um, this is about design. This is about comfort. This is about feeling. I just don't know that you can lay claim to a product being great today unless it's also sustainable. So it does look different. Do you do market research? Do you take it out to your customers and say, do you like this? I like that you just gave me a look when I said that, like, no, we're not. How do you know that this is going to this is going to feel right to your customers? We do a lot of thinking about that and a lot of research. And obviously within the ecosystem of all birds and now, you know, give or take eight years of being in business, a, a lot of information on our customer. And then there's also, there is also the artistic act of creating something. And certainly in the context of this particular product and in the context of innovation, people don't know always what they want. They, and so you have to start to shape that vision and Again, through these levers of pillars of a number of years of thinking deeply about this, um, you start to understand a new design code and you understand the products of the future are going to necessarily, if they're designed through this lens, they're going to look a little different. And that can be a little jarring at first and then it can be exciting. And I'd like to think that we're, we, you know, we're pushing that conversation and, and doing it in a really, really meaningful way. Let me understand where art and market research merge. Like how much market research goes into art without ruining your sensibility? I don't know that there's what an easy it? answer for that. I, I, I just don't think that you put into an, analytics and, and is, is incredibly important, but it's inherently retroactive and historic. And in looking about patterns of behavior that have already happened, it's, it's a little harder. You have to read the tea leaves a little bit to see the future and anticipate what the next chapter of, is of the story. And so I don't think there's one, one answer. And, and sometimes you want to look at, you know, data at scale across your entire consumer base. And then other times you want to get in a room with one or two people or go into someone's bedroom and you want to ask them like, what's the, what's the problem? What's missing here? You literally go into people's bedrooms and you say, take me through, show me what you have, what's missing? Yeah. How are you using these products and where, where, where's it falling Can down? Can you make it more um, concrete in what, relation what, to this product? Like we're looking at um, a high top that doesn't have laces. What is it about seeing people and talking to them that led you to feel like this is going to be okay, this is going to be exciting for them? Well, it's, it's, these are things that are a little bit different. In that, in that particular case, we're maximizing and optimizing for, of those four levers for carbon. And, and to do that, we need to use more of some of the materials that are net negative. And in this case, wool, regenerative wool that we've, we've spent a number of years kind of cultivating and, and working with the growers to, to create. And so we need to use more of some materials to actually hit this particular number. This is an extreme creative exercise to amplify one of those one of those pillars. More broadly, when we're creating product, it's across our entire range. You know, going in and, and asking people and observing, people often won't tell you what they need, but they'll identify and articulate problems. Um, and so that observation and triangulating around analytical assessment and market research, but also your own first person observation you know and design thinking processes to mine those insights is really important and you've got to you've got to toggle between them and then sometimes you've got to do what the hell you want because you feel like the world needs it and it's an artistic creative act and i think if i look back to the founding of all birds i don't think we would have sat in a room and seen a market trend report that said like a merino wool shoe was a great place to start and you should only do one of them 
and you should sell that only in America and New Zealand. It was it was a blend of a little bit of luck and some smart thinking and some a lot of experimentation over a long period of time and Joey's considerable experience in in the space around materials. So I I think you just got to be you got to be confident to toggle bet- between the two. And Andrew, if, if if you're not seeking feedback in in any aspect of your life, whether it be personally or professionally, I think you're dumb. And equally, if you're listening to it at all, you're, you're even more dumb. You, you have to develop some sort of filter um, for for the world around you. That um, and you know, interestingly enough, the most criticism we got in the early days of all, all birds were from people that knew the footwear industry really well. I mean, you remember those folks, Joey? They, they come in the office and say, "You guys have got no, not a chance," because we were breaking rules. We were doing things that were counterintuitive, and we didn't know better. And and so this is always an exercise in triangulation, and it's always an exercise in, in bouncing between the art and the creative uh, act and and the really analytical assessment of, of what okay. makes sense. And so Moonshot is more like you saying, I'm going to have more artistic freedom and I'm also going to prioritize for this, for carbon neutrality, even if it means we're going to put the smiley face with the two zeros to emphasize right on the front that this, is, oh, actually I noticed it right behind you. I, I don't, can't believe I didn't see it this whole time. The the logo of the zero carbon uh, footprint, right, is behind you. I think when people hear the word sustainability or net zero carbon, if if that was the topic that you suggested for catching up with a friend for a beer on uh, at the end of a hard week on a Friday night, they wouldn't come, right? If you talk to them about the creative act of trying to solve the creation of the next generation of footwear that has no impact on the planet and allows us to move past the conversation around sustainability, uh, and that is actually... As much as anything else, it's a design question as much as it is a scientific one. Yeah. Yeah. I, maybe I'll come and talk to you about that. I think the scientists in many ways have done their job. I think it's there's, there's a second act here that, that needs a lot of help from the storytellers, the poets, and the creatives to actually make sense of this and turn it into objects of desire that become part of the future of how we move forward from this moment. Well, I do feel you've done that, not just with these, but with others. I like I, I could see I, we didn't get to talk about the the tree lounges, for example. I can understand how there you might go into somebody's closet and you realize that, you know, they need a slip on. It fits well with this at this situation, maybe with jeans on weekends. And then that makes sense. And now I understand also the artistic uh, side of the business. I'm excited to see where you are. I feel like um, I think in some ways I've taken your company on as like my team for some reason. And maybe it's because I did feel like it was born in Silicon Valley. It was uh, a really intellectual experience that happened to look good, you know, intellectual. Like for me, I love that you could just put it in the washing machine, right? That's just, it makes sense. But I, I hear you're saying, look, it's not as big as Andrew thinks it is. Everyone doesn't yet know about it. And it's not as Silicon Valley as Andrew thinks it is. Not everyone wakes up every day and checks out tech meme and the tech news sites, but it's, starting in this in a few worlds and it's growing from there and i'm excited to watch you grow it thanks for being on here thanks for the kind words and for having us on i've enjoyed the conversation yeah thanks andrew appreciate it and thanks everyone